welcome back to another episode of Nina's Digest. My name is Nina. Um, in this episode, you might be hearing my cat, Winnie, who is in the background right now, chomping away on her food. She'll probably come over and purr into my iPhone microphone in a little bit. Um, last week, I drove here with the two cats. Oh, here she comes. She, you can hear her walking on the hardwood floor here because her nails like click clack on the floor. It's so cute. Um, we drove from Miami to Tampa where I'm gonna be staying with my family while I study for the RD exam, which I'm taking in eight days. And I'm not feeling great about that, but you know, I don't think anyone really has ever felt great walking into the RD exam. Just have to get it done. And I didn't really give myself a whole lot of time to study. So we'll see how that goes, but I'm feeling this. Um, okay, when I first started my internship in January, I was so nervous at the beginning of it that I somehow gave myself horrible low back pain. I, I didn't do anything physically to hurt it. I, I just, one morning I was getting ready to go to the hospital to do some sort of like orientation thing. And I was so stressed and nervous just about my internship in general that I, out of nowhere just got this horrible low back pain that stayed with me for like a week and I'm kind of feeling the same way today so I'm going to be podcasting from bed um but anyway this week let's get back to the eating instinct we're talking I'm going to talk about chapters um three and four because they weren't that long but there's a lot of good stuff in them so chapter three is called comfort comma food and hi Winnie this chapter talks about a woman named Eva who went through infertility for years before successfully getting pregnant. And throughout her pregnancy, she was given really conflicting advice by different members of her healthcare team about what she should and should not be eating. So by the end, <clears throat> by the end of her second trimester, she had been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and transient osteoporosis of the hip, which is a rare bone condition. The doctors who diagnosed the osteoporosis told her that she should be having a lot of calcium and protein, but then her endocrinologist wanted her to limit dairy intake because of the impact that the sugars present in dairy can have on blood sugar levels. Then her fetal medicine specialist told her to ignore any restrictions on dairy and carbohydrates and eat lots of high fat foods. Then a nurse at her endocrinologist's office told her that eating that way would risk her baby's health. So this woman is confused. So she's quoted saying, nobody talked to each other or helped me come up with a safe diet. So I was left to figure it out on my own. She felt frustrated and like she was jeopardizing her pregnancy with every choice that she made and every time she ate a meal. Later in this chapter, Virginia goes into um, the, just the topic of feeding kids in general. And she says that we've raised the bar on how kids are expected to eat, which I agree with. She talks about how we bargain with them to get them to have a few more bites of their vegetables while also giving in when they beg for snacks that are um, not considered to be healthy by the parent, which is, you know, 
labeling foods that way is a problem in itself. She says that meals become a hodgepodge of perfectionism and permission, structure and rebellion. And kids really end up taking in and internalizing their parents' anxious energy around food. And in turn, they become anxious themselves. And this isn't just parents. This is, you know, anyone who they're around often, anyone who is seen as um, like an authority figure, an older family member. Like I remember one time I was really young and I was at a family party and one of my relatives said um, they were offered something and they said, oh, I don't, I don't want anything that's that fattening. And as a kid, I hadn't, I, ha- I couldn't think back to a time that I'd ever heard that before. And I was kind of like, oh, what does that mean? Is this something that I shouldn't eat because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fattening? Like, what does that mean? And it sounds really bad. And obviously, I should avoid this food. And so we think that kids are not as smart as they actually are and that they're not picking up on all of the things that they're actually picking up on and cause problems. So she then starts to talk about the confusing messaging that we share with kids about good foods and bad foods, no matter how that's phrased, right? That can be phrased in a lot of different ways. You could say healthy and unhealthy. Oftentimes we use the word like junk food, stuff like that. And the reason that caretakers and parents do that is not because obviously they're trying to directly harm the child, but because they're confused themselves, right? We're all confused to an extent ourselves about the the value that food provides us or the quote-unquote dangers that food can present us with because of everything that we've been told. We don't know what is good and what is bad because, you know, spoiler alert, no matter how many studies are done on a certain food or nutrient, there's never going to be a single food that's good or bad or healthy or unhealthy. There's always nuance to that no matter what you're talking about. And so she really you know, goes into this idea that our confusion is not just about what our kids are supposed to be eating, but also how are we supposed to feed ourselves? And on the other side of that, how much guilt are we supposed to be feeling over what are perceived as our indulgent falls from nutritional grace, as Virginia puts it. And I want to end this chapter with a quote that so this is something said by Eva she said I want Anika to see Anika's her daughter to see food as fuel as healing I want her to enjoy food I want her to not think about it and then Virginia says I'm struck by the disconnectedness the disconnectedness of those twin wishes but for Eva the combination makes sense thinking about food trying so hard to get it right has robbed eating of all enjoyment The only way Eva can imagine Anika feeling good about food is if she can just not care quite so much about it. But Eva's not sure how to get to that point when she's never been there herself. And I think that so perfectly captures the ways and the reasons why parents have a hard time. You know, ideally, I think all parents would say, yes, I would love for my child to be an intuitive eater, to just listen to their bodies, to be able to know um, or to just honor what they want, what they feel like they need in that moment, to eat when they're hungry, all of these things, treat themselves well. But it's, it's one thing to say that as a parent, and then it's another thing to actually be able to model it and 
successfully instill it in a child because you can't model something that you've never seen modeled to yourself and that you haven't actually incorporated into your life and really taken in yourself. So chapter four is called Fear of Food. And in this chapter, she discusses ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And this is an eating disorder that affects people of all ages. And the symptoms of it can vary pretty widely depending on the age of the person that has it and the developmental context of the person. Some common symptoms of it include avoidant sensory triggers and some really restrictive eating habits along with very fear-based eating experiences. And often the fear is linked to having an allergic reaction or to choking on a particular food or all foods. So Virginia, after she, you know, introduces ARFID, then talks about how anytime she's discussed this with people, she says that she thinks that people have a fascination with adults who eat like children because because they have ARFID. So, you know, maybe you've got someone with ARFID who feels really safe eating chicken fingers and french fries. This is a pattern of eating that is mostly socially acceptable seen in, when seen in children, not so much in adults. So she says that adults that she has spoken with are really fascinated by these other adults who are finding themselves allowing, them, allowing themselves to eat this way. Some of the questions that people ask are, are they all obese? Are they all dramatically malnourished? Do they even poop regularly? Because obviously you know, how could they be healthy if they have such a restricted, limited diet? And she says that underneath these judgmental questions is the envy that these people are, quote, really living out some of our most decadent and forbidden food fantasies, unquote, which is, of course, not actually how it feels to have ARFID, but that's what is perceived when you see another adult, you know, just eating what they want. And maybe it's very limited and not what we've been told is healthy. So for many of these folks, the food that others actually forbid themselves from eating are the only foods that they can stomach. And so we're we're still talking about this is someone with ARFID. The foods that are safest to people with ARFID are often high in salt and sugar and carbs, which, you know, are three things that we've been told as dieters in the 21st century to avoid. Because over time, right, these these diet recommendations shapeshift and change. And right now it's all about sugar and carbs. So Virginia then says the most powerful thing, but she says, but is that really proof of an individual psychological crisis or of a cultural one? So I think what she's saying here is, are these people who are expressing envy that there's another adult that has an eating disturbance, are they so unique and experiencing some sort of individual psychological crisis or is this a common shared sentiment among a lot of adults and therefore this is a cultural problem and I would argue that it's a cultural problem that you know I've heard countless jokes over my lifetime of people saying that they're jealous of someone who has the flu or that they can't wait that you know they want to get sick so that they lose weight um And I think that these are jokes, but that they also have truth behind them and that this is a cultural problem, not an individual psychological crisis. 
So even Virginia, the author of this book, admits that when she was about to meet with an adult who had been diagnosed with ARFID, she wondered if she would notice signs of her restrictive, limited diet in her physical appearance. But what she found was that this person, whose name is Marissa, had what she said was the shiny hair and clear skin that we associate with people who eat salmon and bags of leafy greens every day. Apparently, her blood pressure and her cholesterol and her other you know, significant health markers have always been within normal limits, which, you know, is not what we would expect after we've absorbed all of the information that's out there about how important nutrition is. And I'm not suggesting that it's not important, just that it is not the end-all be-all of health. And there are so many other contributing factors and we're doing ourselves and everyone else a disservice when we put food up on a pedestal and suggest that it's going to be the thing that makes or breaks our health. So another woman who Virginia spoke with when she was researching this chapter is named Jennifer. So she also had been diagnosed with ARFID and her eating disturbances were sort of confusing to doctors because despite her food aversions and her long periods of fasting, she had always been in the overweight category. One day when her mom tried to discuss her ARFID symptoms with her doctor, he responded, this is a quote that's in the book, ma'am, there's no doubt about it. Your daughter is fat, F-A-T, fat. He suggested a 1200 calorie diet for Jennifer without even taking the time to find out that she was already barely eating eating that much anyway because of this disorder. He also recommended that she go to fat camp for the summer. So this was the recommendation given to a girl who would see it as a victory if she could manage to go one or more days without eating. And many might hear this and automatically assume that she was suffering from an eating disorder like anorexia nervosa, but this was ARFID. She had a fear of eating. She had a a real dislike of eating around other people. And she also had extreme pickiness to the point where she would only eat a few different food groups. And yet her doctor didn't take the time to ask probing questions and find out more about her eating habits or even refer her to a dietitian. He simply stated that she was fat and she needed to eat less. And this, of course, does not begin to address the problems experienced by someone with ARFID or anyone else's problems for that matter. So what does this all mean and why is it important? So again, I'm not suggesting that food doesn't matter. If if that was what I, what I felt, then I had have really gone into the wrong field but what i think can be taken away from this chapter and from marissa's experience that we just discussed is what we've already shown through the research that's out there about the factors that contribute to health we think that food is a much bigger contributor to our overall health status than it actually is and of course it is one of the important factors but what about the factors like having good health insurance and living in a safe community and having financial stability? These are the things that don't get brought up when we are making health seem like a personal choice and a personal responsibility. Chances are that Marissa, the woman who has ARFID and eats very few different types of foods but also has stunning lab values, wouldn't have such stunning lab values or the shiny hair or clear skin if she were to eat all the produce in the world but didn't have access to those necessities like financial stability and health insurance. 
the necessities that impact our health so much more than the food that we choose to put into our bodies, I think. I also think that it can open up an interesting conversation about our thoughts on which foods are nutrient-dense and healthy and which ones are devoid of nutrition or just maybe have, quote, empty calories, unquote. Just because a food, like take pizza, for example, doesn't have the health halo around it, that a food like chickpea uh, brownies doesn't mean that it's lacking in nutrition. So if you have a picky eater that you're dealing with and they're willing to eat pizza, think about, and this, you know, this could apply to somebody with ARFID or just a child who's picky. Think about all the different nutrients that that will provide them with. For starters, they're getting energy in the form of calories, right? Baseline energy from all these calories in pizza that helps their body carry out all the processes necessary to keep that person alive and happy. But aside from that, they're getting some fats from the olive oil that's probably in and on this pizza and cheese. They're also getting calcium and protein from the cheese, lots of easily digested delicious carbs from the dough, which our muscles and our brain and our red blood cells need to function. When people talk about refined carbs, they also tend to gloss by the fact that white flour provides us with our much daily... I'm sorry, much of our daily value of thiamine, vitamin B1, depending on how much of it that we eat, it also has a good amount of selenium and folate. Flour also has riboflavin, niacin, iron, manganese, and phosphorus. Then you factor in the potassium and the other micronutrients that you're getting from your sauce, and you've got a pretty well-rounded meal in a slice of pizza. Is it enough to keep you full? Probably not. Is it a good idea to, is this me saying that you should eat pizza every single day for lunch and dinner or any one type of food for that matter for every meal? Of course not. But does having pizza as a meal or snack provide you with many of the essential nutrients that our bodies need to survive and thrive? Yeah. Eat some pizza or whatever the equivalent fear food is for you or food that you've told yourself isn't healthy and that you maybe shouldn't eat or that you should only eat on special occasions. And when you see another person eating a food that you deem to be unhealthy or you generally just don't approve of, um, or just someone's eating habits in general, maybe you don't approve of, whether that person's your child or a friend or a stranger, try to keep it to yourself. And on that note, that's all I have for you this week. I'm going to go back to studying for my exam and say a prayer for me. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.